0: After Jesus came, the emerging Christian community could have rejected everything that came before them and started fresh. But they didn't. Instead, they retained and revered the Hebrew Scriptures, even though many people in the ancient world, as today, said that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God of the New Testament and that all those old Jewish laws had nothing to say about the love of Jesus. The reason the earliest Christians kept the Old Testament and defended it from its detractors is because they had a keen sense that God had worked through and with the Hebrew people, and that the laws, prophecies, and wisdom sayings recorded on those ancient scrolls had the Spirit of God upon them. The ancient Christians also understood that the story of Jesus loses so much of its depth and meaning if it is separated from its Jewish context. They understood that the Old Testament did not contradict the message of Jesus, but was necessary to explain it. So, you might want to review the first reading, maybe in those new hymnals that we have, because we are going to dive deeply into this passage from the prophet Baruch. First, we should note that the book of Baruch is a deuterocanonical book of the Bible, meaning that it is found in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, but not in current Jewish or Protestant Bibles. This is because there were two different texts of the Old Testament during the first century of Christianity. The Hebrew text, called the Masoretic text, and the Greek text, called the Septuagint, and Baruch only appears in the Greek text. In all, there are seven books, plus additions to the books of Esther and Daniel that only appear in the Greek text. Although there is some debate as to whether there might have been Hebrew originals of these Greek books, most scholars today date these books to the 3rd or 2nd century before Christ, which is centuries newer than the other Old Testament books, which date from the 5th to the 11th centuries before Christ. And yet... It is the presence of God in them, not their age, that makes these books inspire. And the ancient Christians generally regarded every book of the Greek Old Testament as the Word of God. These books do not appear in the Jewish Bible because, after the fall of the Jerusalem Temple, Judaism continued primarily through the Palestinian Pharisees, who accepted only the Hebrew text as legitimate. And the Protestants of the 16th century believed that much of the corruption of the Catholic Church came from the adoption of Greek practices in the early centuries, so they rejected the Greek Old Testament in favor of the Hebrew version as well. So when we are reading Baruch, we are looking at a book, probably written about two or 300 years before Jesus, in a community of Jews living in Greek-speaking Egypt. Baruch is a thoroughly Jewish book, but it is written from the Diaspora, not from Palestine. It is written about Jerusalem, but from the outside looking in. The key to the first part of this passage is the word mitre a word that indicates that we are talking about something more more specific than just abstract splendor. A mitre is basically a liturgical hat, and is the same name we still use for those pointy hats our Catholic bishops wear. But in the context of the Old Testament, there is only one mitre mentioned. The mitre described in Exodus 28 that the high priest was supposed to wear when he offered sacrifice. And Exodus 28 also says that there is supposed to be a golden plate on the front of this miter that says, sacred to Yahweh. This is why the full phrase refers to the miter that displays the glory of the eternal name. He is speaking about the high priest's vestments. With this key, we can unlock the fact that the entire first section of this reading is speaking about Jewish worship in the temple in Jerusalem. The splendor that the author has in mind is not just any splendor. It is the splendor of temple worship, with all of its regalia and ritual, held in one of the greatest temples of the ancient world. It would be similar to a Catholic describing the Easter Vigil held in St. Peter's Basilica and presided over by the Pope. Except that for the Jews, there was only one Temple and only one High Priest, making the experience all the more exceptional. And all of this is heightened by the fact that an Egyptian Jew may never have seen the Temple, or is only remembering it from afar, through a nostalgic lens. Then, the second half of this reading turns to the ever-present Jewish theme of exile. It says, Your children were led away on foot by their enemies, but God will bring them back to you born aloft in glory as on royal thrones. The fall and exile of northern Israel to the Assyrians in the 8th century before Christ, and the fall and exile of southern Israel to the Babylonians 200 years later, were definitive events for the Jewish people, 100 times more powerful and 100 times worse than our Pearl Harbor or September 11th. And Baruch here is describing, as so many Old Testament books do, the reversal of the exile, when all Jews will return to Jerusalem and they will live together again as one chosen people. But remember that this book is being written in Egypt. The author of Baruch is not just thinking about the Babylonian exile, but of the fact that so many Jews had been scattered across the eastern Mediterranean world over the centuries that preceded the writing of this book. Due to war and economic factors. This author is longing for the restoration of Jerusalem, not just in general, but specifically for himself and for his family. Which is why his imagery is so powerful, as he copies this image from Isaiah of God clearing away every barrier, even mountains and valleys. So that the children of Jerusalem can return effortlessly and mass. But then the author adds his own beautiful summary. For God is leading Israel in joy by the light of his glory, with his mercy and justice for company. Not only will God allow all Jews to return to Jerusalem, but he himself will accompany them. So what is this passage from Baruch longing for? It is imagining a day when the promise of Israel will be realized. When the great and splendid worship given to the Jews by God himself will shine forth among the nations in all its glory. When the people of Israel will no longer be conquered and exiled, but will return home to the center of their worship, home to Jerusalem where they will live together in peace and harmony, united as God intended from the first call of Abraham. The author of Baruch is looking at the miraculous works of God amongst the Jews and imagining a day when all of these works will be fulfilled and the longing of every Jewish heart will be satisfied. This is where we, Christians, find Jesus. That longing was fulfilled. With the coming of the Lord, the great and splendid worship of the Jews became even more majestic because God himself became both priest and victim. With the coming of the Lord, not just the Jews, but all people from every nation and race have been united together into one house, the church, where they live in peace and harmony, bonded by a common worship. The longing of Baruch is our longing for the Lord. In Jesus, God is leading Israel in joy by the light of his glory, with his mercy and justice for company. Come, Lord Jesus.